I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Postcard from the Past and Wardle Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where we consider unnaturally blue skies, car parks in front of cathedrals and grinning oversized cats as we investigate picture postcards and explore what it was that caused us to keep hold of these little cardboard oblongs. Each time I welcome two guests and it's their postcards that act as tiny prompts to send us shuffling towards memories, mysteries and stories. I'm Tom Jackson and I'm delighted to say that my guests today are rather more elevated than the usual riffraff we have here. They are both academics, uh, a professor of post-colonial literature at the University of Leicester, Corinne Fowler, and senior lecturer in literature at the University of East Anglia, Jeremy Noel Todd. Jeremy and Corinne, welcome to Podcasts from the Past. Hi. Thank you. Now... You might know Jeremy Noel Todd from his poetry reviews in the Sunday Times. Uh, you might have been taught by him at UEA. Um, and you might follow his larky tweets on Twitter. Um, or you may have read the chunky Penguin Book of the Prose poem, uh, which came out in ancient times, 2019, before all this nonsense. Um, Jeremy joins us today bearing an NR3 postmark, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. From from Norwich, uh, uh, the city I haven't left for uh, a, a genuinely a long time now. <laughs> so you you grew up in that area, but you now find yourself there professionally. Uh, yeah, I, gr- I grew up in in Mid Norfolk in a, a little town called uh, Deerham. Um, uh, my dad worked at the university. He was uh, he worked in the library. Um, so uh, oh gosh, it's of... a family business. Well, yeah, yeah. I sort of, you know, the the the, con- the, the famous concrete campus of UEA was was where I spent my childhood. The call um, of the ziggurats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and then I went away to university, um, uh, and I lived in Oxford for a couple of years. Um, but uh, like like many Norfolk uh, people, I found myself tending back in this direction, uh, and I've lived here in Norwich ever since. Very good. Now, just. We're talking about the book of prose poems. For people who don't know, and there will be many, and I'm not entirely sure I quite understand, how do you define... We don't like to talk too much about genre, but how do you define no. a prose poem? Uh, <laughs> I tried to tackle this that's on the your, first page of my job, introduction. You know. <laughs> that was the question everybody asked. Um, and, and, you know, to be, uh, to be fair, I, I copped out um, on the first page, which was Very really wise. to say... Um, it, it has to be written in prose. That is, yeah. you know, not in verse. It doesn't have line breaks. That's not a uh, an aspect of its form. Um, uh, and it has to be presented as a poem. I do actually think intention is quite important here, um, especially if you think, um, you know, of, of sort of similar uh, ideas in modern art. If you present something as art, you're asking people to consider it as art. Um, and, and the prose poem is certainly a modern form of poetry. Um, I, my anthology uh, went back uh, to, to the mid-19th century uh, in France with Baudelaire, who's really the first person to name it uh, as, right. a, as a prose poem. Um, so, but beyond that, uh, and I was thinking about this um, uh, last night, uh, as I was also thinking about, about postcards, you know, a prose poem can take almost any form. People have said it in a way, it's it's a sort of parasitical uh, kind of writing, which inhabits the f- other kinds of form. 
So the postcard actually is 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 a ready-made uh, way of writing a prose poem. It's a it's a brief you, uh, piece of writing. It's usually a single paragraph, and it has a uh, a single subject. So um, I'm actually quite interested, Tom. You, you've set me off on a a potential research project uh, in the <laughs> fact that postcards and prose poems basically were invented at the same time and in the same places between Europe yes. and America. Perhaps a little bit later, the postcard, but. Yeah, well, yes, I, I, I was, yeah, I was trying to work this out, but um, I think there, there is something about the prose poem which is that it is a form of modernity. Yes, um, the, br- it the is briefness, about... the brevity, and the exactly, pro- uh, and and the prose bit of it, I suppose, as opposed to being more elevated and and, and rhythmically in verse. I think that's it. Yeah, Baudelaire said that he, that that he wanted to find a way of writing which would capture the experience of living in enormous cities, and he was living uh, in Paris in the middle of the nineteenth century, which yeah, was, I think, yeah. the largest city in the world. So he so prose becomes the medium in which modern life happens. This is interesting. So you, it, it's ultimately a kind of it grows out of the urban experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 urban in origin. But well, what, a, yeah. what, a, what a fantastic balance to when we speak to Corinne about. Uh, uh, rural history and so on. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's almost like we planned it. Now, uh, Jeremy, do you still send postcards? I do. I'm a bit of a postcard addict. Very um, good. Uh, I realised again after uh, you invited me to to come on, uh, thinking quite how large postcards loom in my life. Um, good. I mean, I think I don't send them as much as I used to, but I certainly buy them. Uh, at the same rate, uh, and sort of, you know, tuck them into books and so on. Um, Very good bookmarks, aren't they? I, I remember when, you know, when picture messaging first came in, became a thing, um, I was very sceptical about it, because I thought, why would people send each other pictures on their phones? <laughs> <laughs> they could just send a postcard. Um, and, and and definitely going on a summer holiday, it, does, I, it doesn't feel to me as though I've really completed it uh, unless I've sent a few postcards still. And who do you send them to? Um, I think family. Um, I've got a, a couple of friends that I would regularly exchange postcards with. Um, if I send somebody a, a, a book, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who has too many books and I'm always trying to get rid of them by sending them to other people who probably have too many books. Uh, <laughs> I'll find a nice postcard to, to pop inside explaining why I'm dumping this on them. Very good. Very good. So, yes, that's, a, that's good. The sort of the compliment slip, but um, elevated to something a bit more interesting. Yeah. Very good. Well, you may know Corinne Fowler from her work at University of Leicester Centre for New Writing. Uh, but more recently, you'll almost certainly have heard about her work on rural Britain's colonial connections, um, partly with the National Trust and in her 2020 book, Green Unpleasant Land, which is a brilliant title, uh, Creative Responses to Rural Britain's Colonial Histories. Now, Corin comes today with a B14 postmark, is that right? Yes, it's quite funny, isn't it, that uh, I grew up in Birmingham. I'm very much Birmingham born and bred you can probably hear a slight influence in my accent and it's really been very formative of my my outlook and my character so what you feel your your urban uh, youth reflects on your 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 attitudes towards the rural history or well it, it's um what's so funny about it is that i you know i'm very much b14 but i've ended up writing about the countryside but of course it was because my parents were absolutely fanatical walkers and my sister and I, I'm a twin, we got dragged out every Sunday to go for very long walks, <laughs> whatever the weather. But that's a, that's a fantastic thing to do, isn't it? It's amazing. It, it's been, it's what gave me my love of the countryside. I do remember moaning at the time and our family saying from the past is, how many more miles? <laughs> <laughs> Not are we there yet. How many more miles? How many more miles, yeah. Very good. And where, whereabouts in Birmingham is that? B14 is, is South Birmingham. And uh, I, I went to the local comprehensive school and the area has changed quite a lot over time where I live, but it's it's got a lot of parks it's got an amazing mix of people Uh, it's a very friendly informal place to live so i love it here very good now corinne when did you last send a postcard um 
probably quite a long time ago. I have to admit that I'm oh, absolutely terrible at sending postcards and I much prefer to just point my camera phone at something and send someone something through WhatsApp. But I'll tell you what, if anybody <laughs> I, sends I me one, I treasure it. <laughs> oh, do you? Do you? Now, I absolutely treasure it. I love is it. Is it so much? It's so much nicer than a bill, isn't it? Yeah, but is it so difficult for you not to feel you could give that pleasure to someone else? I know. I, <laughs> I do try. My father sends them absolutely anywhere he goes. And I've Very tried, good. in theory, to follow uh, his example. But in practice, I'm afraid I don't. Well, I think you are forgiven. You are forgiven, for now at least. <laughs> well, before we see and hear about the cards that Corinne and Jeremy have brought along, I'll give you a quick one of mine. So this is a postcard from the past card, like I do on Twitter and in my book. So it's an old card from which I've selected just a bit of the message. Um, OK, so the first card... I should say, we're recording this remotely and we all have um, dope sheets, information sheets in front of us with all the cards, so we can kind of look them up. Um, it's a bit like following a football match on the radio or something. So um, this is a card of, I think it's pronounced Reading Street, like Reading the town. Um, it's a multi-view. There's five views. It's slightly un underwhelming, actually. Um, the central images of a uh, what looks like a, a pleasant English street with a phone box. And then there's four rather anonymous houses around it. And this place is it's it's a suburb, I think, of Broadstairs in Kent. Um, anyway, obviously these people were there, and this is sent by someone called uh, Pat. And Pat, I don't know, I can't see the date, unfortunately. It's post nineteen seventy, definitely. Um, let me see what the bit that intrigued. Oh yes, is, I thought this is just a bit um, uh, well resonant and kind of mysterious, really. It said. Um, I'm pleased you saw Terry. He keeps in contact with none of us, not even at Christmas. <laughs> I think if, if that was a poem, Tom, um, a, 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 not a prose poem, you'd put the line break after contact um, just to exploit that ambiguity. He yes. keeps in contact with none of us. Yeah, actually, that's the, what's strange about it, isn't it? Because it, it's not he doesn't keep in contact with us. Mm. He keeps in contact with, and yes, you're right, he's in contact. Oh, no, he isn't. The carpet is pulled from underneath you. I, th I think it's, it's, it, it feels more sort of sarcastic, more withering, oh, to put yes. it like that. Yeah, oh, it's the beauty of, of line breaks, isn't it? Poetry, you can really get that full effect. <laughs> well, there is some. You see, sometimes get that on the postcard because postcards are full of line breaks because you, you don't have much space. Yeah, and um, and of course they're arbitrary. You know, they just they just where the words fall. So um, yeah. here's a second one. Now, this one is um, more of a, a typical picture, really. This is a Brixham in Devon, and this I, I can give you a date on. It's 1974, sixth of August, since you ask, and um, it's written by someone called Sue. And it's written to someone called Jelly. They call them Jelly. So I think it's a school friend with a nickname. And um, she says, uh, having a lovely time, had rain all day Sunday, but other days are baking. Um, lots of boys at the club on the site. And then the bit I thought was funny, it said, sorry I couldn't send you any other type of card, but mum wouldn't let me. So I think she was hoping to send a rude card, um, which I'm sure you could have got in Brixton at Devon, but um, she ended up selling, sending oh, quite a nice picture of the harbour. But <laughs> the card that wasn't sent. <laughs> so, the person who didn't keep in touch and the card that was never sent. Well, I should remind all of you listening that images of the cards that we discussed today, those two and all the others, are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can see we're not making this up. Now, um, both Jeremy and Corinne have got cards that you've dug out for us, um, so we can we can discuss them. Jeremy, let's start with you. What's the first card you've prepared for us? Well, I found this card in a scrapbook. Um, it's from my dad, um, and when I was very young, um, three, four, five years old. Oh gosh. Um, my mum encouraged me to keep scrapbooks, uh, and it's a, it's a shame you can't see it. Shame we don't have cameras. This is. Um, It'll be on the website. We can see it. We will see it. Well, well, no, no. I'm I'm talking about about the scrapbook that it's in because ah. this is this is 
probably a collector's item now. It's a play school <laughs> scrapbook. BBC, BBC play TV. School. Yeah. Merchandise. Through the w- <laughs> yeah, through the windows scrapbook. Um, oh. There was a whole play school range, it says, on the back of stationery. Cool. And it's got all the... Um, all the familiar toys from play school, Big Ted, Little Ted, Humpty, uh, that children <laughs> of that era will remember. And then inside, um, on its multicolored pages, I've pasted, as I remember, sort of using flour and water mixed together just to make a oh sort of God. gluey paste. <laughs> Um, times times were hard in Victorian days yeah well yeah (laughs) in rural Norfolk Um, and yeah just sort of rather haphazardly either postcards um, or birthday cards which is how I can sort of trace how old I was because it begins with third birthday cards uh, and goes through to to five so yeah there's a mix of birthday cards and postcards um, uh, including there, there were quite a lot from my dad who must have being a big well, I mean, he was he was a, a a big postcard sender throughout his life, but I think at that time he probably made a special effort uh, if he was away from home. There's one of Tower Bridge uh, in London opening with a boat going through, but nice. he's borrowed on a little car falling off the edge. <laughs> I love and it. On the, I love yeah, it. And on the back he says, "Can you see that Mr. Silly has just driven his car over the edge?" Oh. Um, so that that that's not the one that I that that I. Uh, have it's brought along today, but it's it's a it's a context, yeah. So there's all sorts. There's there's a Prince uh, Charles and Lady Di wedding postcard. Oh, there's it. one of Piccadilly Circus with all its adverts. Um, Wonderful. So yeah, I just sort of it takes me back to a time when you know I just hoarded any kind of treasure that came my way, um, mm. including postcards. Well, you don't get um, much post as a kid, do you? That... No, that's it. And if it if it actually comes to you with your name on. Uh, and you've got to the stage in your life where you can actually read your name. Um, this is a sort of, you know, uh, this is the event of the day. Um, <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, um, I'm leafing through uh, to find the one at the back. Um, oh, yeah, which is opposite all the fifth birthday cards. So this is from 1982. Shall I describe this one? Yes, let's, let's, let's hear what it is. Okay, so... My mum has captioned it, um, postcard from Daddy in Oxford, uh, and it was sent uh, September 1982. And I don't know why my dad was in Oxford. Um, He would have been working uh, at UEA in the library by then. It may have been a a work trip. Um, But it's, it's a postcard that he obviously bought from the Bodleian Library, uh, shop, uh, and on the front there is a detail from a medieval manuscript showing a hare with a crossbow hunting a man. Um, Unbelievable! Oh, the man's the, in the tree. Yeah. So there's yeah. So there's several hares, um, all sort of standing upright on two legs, um, and the, there's one man in the tree with a hare looking at it, smiling, yes. and then on the on the other side there's a man upside down tied to a pole. Uh, who's at, been at first, this looks this looks very cute. Those of cute bunny rabbits, but yeah, <laughs> at, close, at closer inspection, far from it. No, it's 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 very sinister, and it, it's a it's a classic sort of medieval world turned upside down. It's the the animals hunting the humans. Very um, good. Uh, and yeah, and and on the back, he he sent it to to me and my brother. Um, oh, by the way, I'm I'm a twin too, uh, Corinne. Oh. Um, so, Tom, you wow. managed to pick two academic twins for your that podcast. Is, oh, that amazing. happens all the time with twins, doesn't it? Don't you? Does think? it? <laughs> yeah. It must be Does... some strange t- statistical anomaly that that happens, or yeah, there is something about about being a twin. Um, it's seems, a gravitational force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's yeah he sent it to both of us, and he's just said this is what happens if you're unkind to rabbits. So there's a sort of there's a sort of gentle moralising yes. uh, going on. They'll shoot at you with bows and arrows and chase you <laughs> up trees. <laughs> uh, and then the other bit of information on the card is that he went running. Uh, he was a big runner at that time. And he found a shop selling everything for parties, even complete clown suits. Just imagine it. Very good. That's the kind of detail you want to hear at that age, I think. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> And 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 it it brought back a, a very early memory, which is of visiting uh, a joke shop in Oxford, which sold clown suits. So I assume that that 
when I got an opportunity, I, I sort of clamoured to be taken to this magical place. <laughs> Which you'd read. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you told me about this, and, and now I want to see the, the hares hunting men in trees. <laughs> Very good. Well, it, I mean, uh, it, a lot of things jump out of this at me. One of them is, of course, that um, there was a famous postcard bought from the Bodleian Library, which is the one that led to Jacques Derrida's rather unreadable book about postcards. Ah, right, yes. Well, I, I, I was thinking about uh, Derrida. I confess I haven't read his book, The Postcard. Yeah, but it's not an easy read, believe me. I do. I like his essay on Ulysses, one of my favourite books, um, in the middle of which he, he uh, describes Ulysses as an immense postcard, <laughs> um, which is something mm. I've always pondered. Uh, yes. what he meant by that yeah might make it seem less daunting a read to students well yeah if you think of every page as a sort of little a snapshot from uh, from dublin um i think i think he's referring to the fact that at the end joyce signs it trieste zurich paris um the three places in which he wrote it uh, so mm. it's sort of presented as a as a as a kind of record of his travels yes yes there's one line i remember from i Really, I'm no no position to start pontificating about Derrida. But one line I remember from his book was um, he says that in theory, the message on the back of a postcard is the caption to the picture, and the, so that it's, yeah. it's as if it's as if every message is describing the picture, mm. and um, that's something that seems to work inadvertently on what I do on the Twitter. Because people often interpret what was the message as somehow always. A, in this case, of course, your father's message does is a caption to the picture. Yeah. But more often than not, holiday postcards are completely separate. The picture and the message are both in different worlds, really. Mm. And and the comedy quite often comes from the the incongruence between those two things. Precisely. Precisely. Very good. Well, that's a fantastic picture, and it it um, it. it uh, Will haunt me probably with those rather frightening hairs. But anyway, okay. Um, I'm sorry about that, Tom. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll keep Obviously, you we were made of tougher stuff growing up in rural Norfolk in the 80s. Yeah, kids we'd, were tough. We'd, we'd seen it all. <laughs> That's it. Because coming from the South London suburbs, you see, I was very, very un, un, un aware of the, 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 the how terrible nature could be. Right, Corinne, let's 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 move on to you now. What's the first card landing on your doormat? It is. The postcard of a photograph, it's black and white actually, um, by Faye Godwin, the photo, photo, photographer. She went taking photographs of the old Drover's Road and there are loads of photographs of Wales. They're all together in one book, but my parents collected this image. I don't know if they went to her exhibition, but it's a place where we used to walk as a family, it's one of those walking stories. It, it reminds me of my my childhood where we used to go to Wales, mid-Wales, every year in the autumn stroke winter. And uh, the this photograph is from nearby those old drovers' roads. Um, and my family, our family walks were basically uh, Get up, no matter what the weather, as I said, if there's a gale, if there's snow, if it's a horrible, wet autumn day. And there was a walk along this old drover's road to three lakes. And the lakes were surrounded by walls of rock. Oh. And we used to shout across these lakes and the echo would come back. I can still hear it now. Really? We would shout, the wow. echo would come back. And then we'd go, we'd have maybe have a snack and then we'd walk to the next lake. This was actually a really long walk. It was something like a, a 16 mile walk. That's we'd a go good to the second lake. We'd, I know, if it, I told you my parents were unyielding. And anyway, <laughs> so we'd go to the next lake and we'd probably have a lunch there and that had an even better echo. But it's so remote, this country this countryside that you wouldn't see another soul all day and I used to imagine these people going along these old drovers roads with their cattle or their sheep or whatever and then there was the third lake which was incredibly mysterious and the locals said that the, it, it was so remote 
um, that the fish were all inbred and were strange shapes and sizes. Oh, what they sort of developed their own species, or yeah, yeah, they yeah they they had you know extra fins and things like that and all <laughs> kinds of strange mutations. Who I don't told know you if this? It was true. Well, this is this is what the locals used to say. Really? And actually, this this little cottage we used to stay in, we'd go to that third lake and then we'd turn back and, and you know, the walk was done and it was slightly easier, the path back, than the, the gradual uphill slog that we had on the way there. But the third lake was, it also had an echo, but it was so remote and strange and very small that it, it was a bit haunting, actually. Um, but there was... A, a woman that used to rent this old cottage to us and she used to come to collect the money for the holiday. Right. And we would love her coming because she would tell us all the local ghost stories. Oh, my And we'd God. sit by the fire, yeah, eating, uh, you know, cake or I don't know what we post or whatever, and she would tell us these haunting stories. And it was always a different story. She never told us the same one twice. Really? So that was what? Yeah. You must have been terrified. Oh, we loved, you know, how much children <laughs> love being terrified and hearing the, the local ghost stories. But it did make you a bit reluctant to go out of the cottage to <laughs> throw something in the outside bin after dark. It's it's a very fine image, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's quite, I mean, it's, I'm looking at quite a small version of it, but it's very abstract. Yeah. It's it's very hard to kind of, it's you know, the, the landscape is, it's a, it's a series of, washes of grey really yeah absolutely and she's what i love about her is that the way that she could catch the light i mean that whole postcard that whole photograph it's all about the play of the light uh, mm. that brings these kind of stark shapes into uh, into relief it's uh, coming through then, the mist yeah. is it is that what's happening it is yeah yeah and is that morning it's, do you think it's hard to say, isn't it? It, it looks, uh, I mean, the one thing about Britain, I know it rains a lot and the weather can be miserable, but I've always thought that British skies are fantastic because they're so varied. And I love it when the, the dark clouds contrast with the, the bright light coming through. You don't get that in when it's just all day, every day sunshine. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like sunshine like the next person and warmth and wearing T-shirts and things. But there is something about the play of light and the fact that the sky never looks the same twice. I do really enjoy. And it looks to me like it's just before or during a thunderstorm. There is something looming, isn't there? Yeah. It, it, when I saw it, it, um, it immediately made me think of a... Uh, a poem by T.S. Eliot. There's a there's a little set of poems by Eliot called Landscapes, um, mm. and he writes one actually in Scotland um, called Rannoch by Glencoe. But he has this great line about uh, between the soft moor and the soft sky, scarcely room to leap or soar. And this this picture sort of captures that sense of the sky and the land meeting at this very thin line <laughs> of light um, yeah. that you might just sort of escape through. It does look like a transitional place, doesn't it? The mist is, is like, it's it's neither one thing nor the other. I like the, the kind of, the bright strip of water. And again, it's just the reflection of the light in the foreground. It's like a, a kind of line across the picture. Mercury. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, it, it feels like a very pure piece of photography that she's really just been sort of working with the, with the, the darks and the lights here. Mm. So when you when you look at something like this and you think about the the English landscape, obviously it's very hard not to find it romantic and to enjoy the kind of uh, the, the wildness of it. Do you think people's kind of instinctive love of nature is one of the things that led to such a such a uh, strong reaction to your work on 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 in Green Unpleasant Land and the work with the National Trust? Yeah, I think probably because the the countryside was a real place of refuge for lots of people, even if it was within a city, going to those greenways, your local canals or whatever, it was just a relief from not having anywhere to go or anywhere to go away to. And I think that because the countryside is 
often psychologically quite soothing or, or invigorating or renewing for us, that we have quite an emotional relationship with it. And of course, we've got hundreds of years of, of formative ideas about the countryside coming to us through through literary works and, mm. you know, whether that's pastoral poems or anti-pastoral poems or whatever. Um, so I think it, it probably is connected to it. And, of course, the title of my book, Green Unpleasant Lands, <laughs> is... Um, Somewhat yeah, you know, I mean, in retrospect, uh, <laughs> provocative, but I mean, it was supposed to be an indication that it was a disruptive book in the sense that it was opening up dimensions of rural history that we might not have thought about before, which are connected to both sensitive and, in many cases, traumatic histories. I think also that, I mean, you know, we, we talk about the sort of the, the mystery and the charm and the beauty of the landscape. It doesn't matter how much you understand the layers of history and complex history and often ugly history that has gone on. The mystery remains anyway. You're not going to kill the landscape. No, and and um, absolutely. And I, you're just adding another layer of understanding to it. And, and you get a sense of it, its depth and resonance and also contrast. Um, so, yeah, of course... Um, but then something something that obviously I've been contemplating for some time might come as a shock to somebody for, for whom that is news. And uh, I totally understand that. I think it takes a while to adjust your, your thinking about places that you thought you knew very well. But there are all kinds of repressed histories of the countryside, uh, the, the working histories of the countryside, the history of rural poverty is known on some levels, but um, it's something that's well worth finding more out about because these places are places of struggle and strife as well as um, places where you can, you know, the romantic can walk and be invigorated and awe-inspired and so on. As in reading your book, I was thinking about particularly the, perhaps the most visible sign of um, the transatlantic slave trade and so on would be the country house and it's the kind of you write very mm. interestingly about that and I was thinking about country houses or stately homes on postcards and in a very unscientific way I was thinking what are the views that you see and I think there are three views you see on postcards and I will tell you what they are <laughs> number one is a sort of palladian white building in a green mm. In, on, on, a, on a snooker table, you know, perfect green around it, maybe a few trees behind. That's number one. Number two is you have a sort of um, hallway with a spiral staircase or a little staircase and maybe some <laughs> statues in the, in, 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 to one side. And then the third one is the long hall, that picture of a long hall, whether it's a sort of dining mm. area or a wall or a gallery, that sort of long mm. building. And those those strike me as the three images you see again, or I see again and again and again on old postcards of um, country houses, stately homes. I don't quite know where that, you know, why those images are particularly the ones that get chosen. But well, I think I mean the first one is is very much Arcadia, isn't it? And um, the the kind of the retreat, the rural idyll. Um, and the the second ones are more to do with with is opulence and. I remember the introduction to Madge Dresser and Andrew Hand's slavery in the British country house. And it, the first thing it says is that the country house has always been seen as the jewel in the heritage crown. And it's been looked at very much. Um, and this relates to your third uh, image that you mentioned to the kind of art history side yes. of, of things and and of course the the family history side of things and that's what's more familiar to us and those postcards re sort of perfectly reflect that. Hmm. and and as a visitor to those places tom you you describing those those um pictures that you get on postcards it makes me think that you get a very sort of stage managed uh glimpse of life inside the house you know you're allowed to see certain kind of places and to marvel at the uh the, the history and the the treasures um yes i mean listening to you talk about it, it makes me think what a funny phrase 
stately homes is. <laughs> um, I don't know, Corinne, if, you've, if, if this has ever come up for you, but it's, you know, it, it kind of brings together two words that actually don't quite, quite fit together. It's, it's, it's a home, it's a family home, but also it's stately. I mean, does that, does that mean it sort of has a, it has a dignity or that it sort of is related to the, does it have a political meaning? I've never really thought about it. I think it's a good question. Um, It's funny because um, academics have more recently termed them country houses because it's, you can sort of include more houses in that category of different sizes and Mm. levels of grandeur. But stately, it certainly points to the idea of polite society and and something sophisticated, doesn't it? And, Mm. And sedate, in fact. A place yeah. where you you're not going off at a gallop. You're uh, stately as you know, a galleon. It, there's something poised <laughs> <Yeah>. about it. <laughs> well, is well, famously, it's the first word of Ulysses. That immense postcard is stately, <laughs> plump, stately? buck mulligan. Um, Very good. You've, oh. you've just given us the first and last words of Ulysses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, if only we could get, get to the bits in between. The bits in between, yeah. <laughs> no, very good. Very good. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, we, I, I would be happy to talk all day about, about your work, Corinne, but we should, we should move on. The postcards are calling. So um, another quick one from me. Now, this is, if I can find the right card. We're moving away from Britain now, and we're going to Italy. And this is... It's from a place called Catolica. Do you know Catolica? I don't know it. Um, no. And, and this is a picture of the docks. Uh, well, it says the docks. I think you or I would call them the very pretty harbour. And um, let me find the bit that was entertaining in the card. Um, oh, yes. I just thought it was an odd little detail, really. It's um, spent yesterday in San Marino, which was a fascinating experience. And it says... I have spent a small fortune on relatively cheap cassettes, <laughs> all opera, which I find difficult to obtain in Ipswich. <laughs> and I thought, I, you know, I spoke, Italy, Italy, opera, yes, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, how hard is it to get hold of cassettes in Ipswich? I don't know. Should have come to Norwich. Full of classical music shops, yeah. is it? Well, actually, had I did have a really good classical music shop in the eighties and nineties. Um, That's where which, this was. Uh, well, uh, you know, no offence to Ipswich, but I suspect it was possibly <laughs> the only one in East Anglia. Um, I suppose it does was, remind me of the fact the days when it was hard to get hold of stuff. You know, yeah. Um, you know, nowadays it was everything. If you're took online, a lot more effort. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, really, but. Uh, yeah, so going to, and I wonder even if they were like knockoff CD, knockoff cassettes. I don't know. Probably not in Italy. Actually, they're probably legitimate. <laughs> really? <laughs> Am I being naive? <laughs> well, now I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the the classical music shop in Norwich and how just across the marketplace um, there was a stall in the '90s that sold knockoff cassettes of uh, live recordings of um, uh, of rock groups. Ah, yes. Um, you know. Presumably totally illegal, but but traded for many years quite happily. Yes, like they used to be in Camden Market or um, Portobello Market. You could get all those. I think they're all online now. You just click a click a click an icon, and they download onto your whatever. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. And my guests today are both academics working in the field of literature, Jeremy Noltod and Corinne Fowler. And here's a surprise. We've received a postcard. And this postcard is from Mrs. Jean Hill, and uh, she's in Kings Lynn. And she says, uh, the answer to the mystery voice is Jesse Matthews. Uh, I'm afraid that's the wrong answer, Mrs. Hill, but thanks for trying. Right, Jeremy, let's push on. What's the second card you've got for us? OK, so the second card is um, a picture of... Uh, a, a sculpture of a dog called Dog. Very cute. Uh, yeah. Um, a cute little dog. Um, I think probably a Dashund. Um, and it's a sculpture by uh, Henri Gaudia Breschka, um, the modernist sculptor, the French modernist sculptor who came, lived in Britain uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, and then was killed in 1915 back in the trenches uh, in France. Um, and this was made in 1914, uh, and, and it, it seems to have been one of the last pieces that he made. It's got a fabulous um, sort of deco kind of look to it. Yeah, it's 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 extremely striking. Um, I mean, it's it's very stylized. It's it's the form of the dog simplified to a few lines, but it's not. I, I mean, he he was part of the the Vorticist group with Wyndham Lewis and Ezra Pound, and and, and his work appeared in Blast magazine, which was all very sort of aggressive and angular, and and you know punk uh, for its times. But 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 there's something about the dog which is actually very sort of appealingly rounded. There are no very sharp edges on this dog. Um, and, and it's also been photographed in a very homely setting, um, which is the Kettle's Yard Gallery in Cambridge, ah. um, which you, you may know, um, may have visited, um, which, which is or was a home um, to the, the art critic and collector Jim Ede, um, who then bequeathed it uh, to Cambridge uh, to be a museum. So when you visit it, you still see it as a as a house with all these uh, objects that he collected. Um, and he wrote the first biography of uh, Gaudia uh, Breschka um, and bought a lot of his work after he died. Yeah. Um, but look at, looking this up, because um, uh, I didn't know all this about, uh, about the image, but I, I looked it up on the Kettle's Yard uh, website, uh, and I find out that, it, that because it was, it was in a home that was being used as a home, it actually got broken uh, <laughs> at some point uh, in the 20th century. It was made of marble, um, and to restore it, he rather than just stick it back together, which presumably was quite difficult, um, he had 12 bronze casts made of it. Um, so this is actually one of those bronze oh, casts, yeah, and, and presumably others went to, to other museums. But but yeah, he'd said something nice about it. He's, well, he says he says it is essentially sculpture, and yet at the same time it is deeply realistic, which I think catches the the nice sort of abstract and yet lifelike quality of it. You know, it, it is almost like a dog that could sit on your lap. And he said, I have known a child take it to bed instead of his teddy bear, um, which, to be honest, you know, does suggest how it got broken. Yes. Um, <laughs> but also, you can't say that about many sculptures, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want to take that sculpture to bed, Uncle Jim. Well, that's funny. My son used to take his football to bed. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, did he dream about uh, scoring the fi- winning goal in the FA Cup final? Oh, probably. Uh, probably he did, yeah. 
<laughs> well, there's a, there's a story about I've forgotten now whether it, you know in the way of twins whether it, it was me or my brother but one of us when we were very little had some sort of calamity where a cot fell apart in the middle of the night uh, and the next night went to bed with a hammer <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Unbelievable, but, but no, it would be terrible if you had a sort of night night terror and you got a hammer in your hand. It will, I know, yeah, that'll fix it. Yeah, oh my god! Thank God, thank God, we all made it through childhood. <laughs> um, so this this postcard was sent to me um, by uh, the poet R. F. Langley, Roger Langley, um, who I knew. Um, uh, from about 2001, when I, I wrote uh, a review of uh, his poems uh, in the London Review of Books, and then uh, he got in touch, uh, and I was living in Norwich, and he was living down in Suffolk. Um, so we began to sort of visit each other occasionally. Um, at that point in his life, he was retired. He'd been a, a school teacher um, uh, in uh, Birmingham, or just outside Birmingham. Um, and uh, then he moved to Suffolk, which is where he always spent his summer holidays and where he always found the inspiration for his poems. Um, and the book that I reviewed was his collected poems, um, which appeared, uh, I suppose he was around 60 when it appeared. And it was sort of uh, famously only 72 pages long, which is not very long for a collected poems. Sure. This was remarked upon at the time. Um, but he was somebody who, you know, maybe wrote one poem a year during his working life. And then when he retired, he became a bit more uh, prolific. Uh, and so he had a second book coming out, which is what the the postcard is about. I actually, I actually found the letter which I wrote to him around the same time. I'd received a copy of his uh, of his next book, which was called The Face of It. Um, and, and he mentions it in this postcard, saying it's coming out at the end of April. So the year is 2007. Um, uh, uh, and he says it's sort of very typical kind of understatement. Um, you know, this this is a postcard from a poet, but it's it's very sort of downbeat. It's not at all lyrical. Uh, he says about the book, it looks okay, except I thought it would cover more pages. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is quite a prosaic comment. Yeah, um, which I love. And, and actually, I found I just remembered this morning when I was. Uh, getting my things together. I remember another little card that uh, he slipped inside a, another book that he sent to me, um, which he just says, Jeremy, here's a little offshoot. Hope you like it, Roger. Um, <laughs> nice. So he was very sort of dry and kind of didn't make a didn't make a fuss about things. Um, but yeah, I uh, I admired his poems enormously. He was my my favourite uh, uh, living poet, uh, and um, every poem by him was was a was a, an event for me. Um, uh, and eventually, uh, after um, after his death um, in uh, 2011, um, uh, I a few years later I edited the complete poems, which put these two books together, uh, and, and brought a few other things in as well. Um, so that takes me back to that time in my life and also just sort of makes me think about the whole poetic quality, the modernist quality of the postcard. Um, there's something about Roger Langley's poems is that they're made up of lots of little bits and pieces of things. Um, nice. He kept a notebook where he would sort of write down little passages and little... Uh, he also kept journals where he would he would make very close observations of the natural world, usually when he was on holiday. So, you know, rather than writing postcards to other people, he would write these sort of extended postcards to himself to remind him uh, of the things that he'd seen. And all this would eventually filter uh, into the poems. Very good. So this well, is, he obviously this... liked your reviews. Well, yeah, and, and I, <laughs> um, I, d I did sort of uh, uh, make a, you know, make a big song and dance about how I thought there was this extremely exciting poet that you know nobody had heard of at that time. Um, but it turned out that we had quite a few things in common. We were both sort of very big on visiting, um, you know, the sort of out of the way East Anglian churches. Um, so we'd go church crawling together, and he was a great expert. You know, buy a postcard if you could. Sort of pop some money in the <laughs> in the honesty box. That's very good. There is there is something. Uh, well, 
the postcard is dying, but one of the places it's not dying, I think, is in the sort of literary world. So mm. I think it's whether it's whether, as you said earlier, it's the sort of compliment slip. And in a way, this is a kind of compliment slip, isn't it? Uh, or, or, the, or the thank you. The thank you. Yeah. Is the other one. Mm. Yeah. There, yeah. I was I was looking back through the my prose poem book last night and I thought there's there's one prose poem which is written as a thank you note and it would go perfectly on a postcard. It's right. called The Skull Ring. And the last line is, thank you very much for the skull ring. <laughs> I mean, if, if, um, it's by an American poet called Chelsea Minnis. Um, but it, it just sort of, that line leapt out at me as something that, you know, I could imagine seeing on your Twitter feed, Tom. <laughs> thank you very much for the skull ring. Yes, it's a great, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love the fact that you, you, it's all you need to know anyway. It's all you need to know because you can put, fill in the gaps uh, or better yet, don't fill them in. Very good. Well, that's, that's a really nice uh, memento, really, I think, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he mentions on it that he's, um, I've, I've, I was a PhD student at the time and I was looking after my uh, very young daughter a few days a week and I suggested he might want to come up to Norwich and we could go and see one of the museums. Um, again, another good source of postcards. Um, but he's, he, he says in the postcard that he's actually on uh, off on a trip to Italy, uh, names the various places that he's going to go, uh, and sort of doing my my kind of uh, academic detective work, I realised that this was the trip which did actually inspire some of the later poems that he wrote. He, he mentions Perugia as one of the places he's going, and he later writes a poem uh, uh, called The Best Piece of Sculpture in Perugia. Um, right. So it's nice to sort of follow the creative process, which for him, you know, could, could extend over a number of years between the experience uh, and, and the poem that eventually uh, resulted. Yeah, it's quite a privilege to be sort of party to seeing that process happen. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so although although not ostensibly poetic, there's all sorts of poetry just under the surface, I feel, of this postcard. Yes, yes. Wonderful. What a lovely card. Thank you for sharing it with us. Now, Corinne, what's your final postcard for us? Well, um, perhaps inevitably, uh, this, this postcard is a black and white picture of Penryn Castle, again in Wales. It's, this is in North Wales. And I chose that because I, I found it in a, a local shop in Bangor when I was going on one of the colonial countryside visits. And I like the angle that the castle's taken from because it really does, it's this incredibly opulent castle built for the um, you know the Lord Penryn and and family, the Pennant family, and the money, of course, came from sugar plantations in Clarendon, Jamaica, to not only build the castle, which is incredibly opulent inside, but also to create the slate quarry locally, which was the site of a a really bitter industrial dispute. Um, and also so th to so pay this is not a, a local medieval castle. No, no, it's a it's a mock. It's a sort of mock gothicy castle, and it, it's just incredibly, um, in many ways, an unpleasant building. If it, on some levels, because it it really is very very gothic and not particularly welcoming outside, but when you go inside, it's incredibly opulent. So there is a staircase that is absolutely beautiful it's all carved out of stone in the most intricate designs all the way up to the ceiling and it took apparently 30 years for these stonemasons to to complete it and mm. I, I think that shows you the level of wealth yes that this family had but it was also i you know i picked this postcard because it's got some of the happier memories of colonial countryside um because obviously i had to go and stay the night before. It's quite a long way away from Birmingham, so I'd get the train. And I met the project commission photographer there, Ingrid Pollard, who has, of course, been photographing the countryside for for decades and thinking about race and the countryside on all kinds of levels and looking into history from all perspectives. So I was really happy that that she was able to, to photograph colonial countryside through the whole process. So I met her and also my project manager, Kevin, who is a Zimbabwean refugee and <laughs> loves swimming. 
So as right. soon as we got to the 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 kind of waters, we we were staying in a an, a B and B near the near the sea, and he just decided that he had to go and swim. And it was cold. It was freezing cold. But it was. <laughs> and so Ingrid Pollard, Kevin and myself, we went to the water's edge and he, he stripped down to his swimming shorts and plunged in. And we just watched <laughs> him killing ourselves laughing. Uh, uh, it was, it, wherever we all went, he always, if we were near the water, had to go for a go for a swim, and I I filmed him on a couple of occasions. It was very very funny because he was screaming with the cold. <laughs> That's not, this is this is not the usual academic field trip, is it? No. <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun on colonial countryside, you know. I must say, you look at the, you look at the building, of course, and it it is extraordinary because it's it's a retrofit, isn't it? It's designed to look like it's been there forever. Exactly, um, and and that's and, so and common. The, and, the, in... and the roots in the countryside, whereas in fact it's presumably it's, it's, this is a this is a, a, a nouveau riche enterprise funded by slavery. Yeah, precisely, and I think a lot of these Gothic designs were they were quite common with with families with what was their new money. Um, they they would kind of infer through the buildings, through the architecture, that they were families with old money. <laughs> And that they'd been there for an awful long time. It's sort of implying that they'd been there perhaps since medieval times and that yes. there was nothing new about about their their arrival at all. So I think it's a kind of, yeah, it, it, it's a, a bit of a, a, a folly in one way, but it's also a, an illusion of permanency. It's fascinating, really. And, and that, that's there in the, the way it's been photographed. As, you know, It's emerging yeah. from the trees as though it is just another tree, a sort of great old oak or something. Exactly. <laughs> and it is like that. When you see the castle, it just peeps out there in such an intriguing way. And it looks out to the sea as well, which is extremely hmm. symbolically significant given its connection with Jamaica. I mean, the, the historian there who was... Um, assisting us is Marion Gwynn and she's been researching that castle's history for a quarter of a century and she has found in local archives and some of the National Trust volunteers too have looked in these archives and seen the letters between the absentee landlord Lord Penryn and his agent in Jamaica and there are so many stories uh, which which are still reflected in the castle today so for example the there's a turtle shell in the kitchen, which is reflecting a letter from the agent to Richard Pennant, Lord Penryn, saying, um, look, I'm sending you a crate of live turtles because I know that you're ill and so you can make turtle soup with them. Ooh. And they, these turtles actually got sent over on, on the ship. And did they um, But there are other letters... <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know the rest of that story. You just I guess they must have done to stay to stay fresh. Well, they, was, yeah. was turtle I mean, soup they, they... supposed to be restorative? Was it? Did it? Apparently, apparently, it was supposed to make properties. him feel better. Yeah, Gosh, apparently, turtle, apparently, turtle soup for the soul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's that aspect, but there's also a sort of more sinister side to it, where they, they at one point. Um, Richard Pennant writes to his agent and says, "You know, you know, make sure that my, uh, you know, my neither my cattle nor my Negroes should be mistreated." Um, yeah. So yeah. The, you know, you get a sense of the the equation between livestock and enslaved people. Yeah. Um, the the language kind of really leaps out at you there. My God! And did you engage with the current owners? Well, there is. I did meet a, a descendant who is, is very interested in the Jamaican history. As uh, surprisingly, lots of lots of uh, families his, of historic houses are interested in that history because it's part of their history, um, very much so. Um, another good example is the family at. Harwood House in Yorkshire, they're very mm. interested in the history and they think it's a good thing to talk about it. Well, perhaps if you're that close to it, you are a little, you've, you've dealt with it perhaps a little bit more than 
sort of trying to hide it away over the years. Yes, although it could be hidden in many senses, because if you go into the castle, you've got no inkling, no clue about where this money came from. It's, it is really so lavish inside. It's also got Chinese wallpaper, lots <laughs> of Chinese wallpaper, beautiful stuff. And, and that kind of links you to the East India Company histories yes. as well. So fascinating. It, I think the whole, I think the, you know, you didn't invent this world, this area of discussion, but you've done a lot to, partly inadvertently, partly deliberately, I suppose, bring it into the public debate. And I think it's 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 going to continue as an absolutely fascinating area that I think we will eventually make sense of as a country and work out how to deal with it. But at the moment, it feels like we're in a, a mixture of sort of uh, shrieking and denial, and it's it's um it's an odd time. Well, we're we're in a phase where there's an emotional response to to history, but then when that kind of when we all get used to it, I think that we can make the adjustments in our minds and just accommodate it and, and live with it and explore it. It will seem less less threatening, I think. Hmm. Well, anyway, I think it's 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 if at the very least it's a fascinating world to explore. I think I think it's just mm. for me it, it it adds so many layers of meaning. Yeah. I remember going to see country houses as a kid, and being taken around them and being bored to tears, of course, and <laughs> but not connecting with them at all because they were, everything was so big and so grand and it wasn't something I could make sense of. Now I'm not saying I had some fantastic uh, intuitive understanding. I certainly didn't. But I think the sense that they were, a lot of these places were put together with a kind of river of wealth that had come from somewhere else mm. does explain that sense of disconnect for ordinary people just looking at these things. Well, I think it, it certainly, it, it, they, they are places which do, in a way, speak to our times because instead, if you look at them as global places and not local places, that's really the history of our islands, um, and it and it's also resonant for so many of the children growing up here who are linked through family history to continents which were for uh, uh, continents and countries which were formerly colonised um, to a large degree. So, I think that that's why the history is kind of so relevant to us now in lots of ways because it's part of the legacy of colonialism and I, I like your description of the the sort of alien feel of these places that they didn't seem to be sort of naturally to you part of the landscape actually a bit of a, a strange imposition on the landscape so it's another way of looking at them for sure I, th I think it would be so much more interesting for for that younger generation to see them in this way to see them connected to the world uh, and in that historic rather than that in that sort of you know kind of very English pretend way of just being natural and isolated you know cut off from uh, from from yeah. reality um, yeah. yeah maybe we need to get out of this phase generally in the country of cutting ourselves off from reality and then we'll everything will make sense <laughs> it, it makes me it makes me think that that phrase stately homes will die out too you know, because the more I think about it, the more I hear a kind of euphemism in it, which I think is what this this you know this this work is is challenging. Um, so you're right. yeah, to some perhaps... extent, these are all euphem these are euphemisms made out of brick, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, euphemisms yeah. in stone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, thank you both so much for sharing these cards and the stories and and reflections that they've brought us. It's, it, I'm, I'm really really grateful. Um, I've said it before. I never know where the cards will send us. Um, and I'm delighted that you managed to share them share them with, with us today. Now, before um, before we go, I should remind uh, everyone listening that images of these cards are on the website, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can see them because, uh, although I hope we've described them, that will also help you understand what we've been looking at. Um, but before we let you two go and you unzoom yourselves or unclean feed yourselves, um, I've got one more postcard for you both. Now, normally in the studio, I would hand this over to you can't do that today so you have to go to the final page of your dope sheet and you should see a picture of a grinning young man mm. i don't know if you can see that yeah oh, yes perhaps, jeremy perhaps you could describe him to us for, for the listener 
Uh, <laughs> well, he's certainly got something to smile about, but yeah. uh, what is a mystery? Um, <laughs> and it also looks sort of a, a little alarmingly as though he's been shot because there's a there's a white hole punched uh, through just below the knot of his tie. He's 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 natally dressed and he's got a sort of uh, a kind of swept back. Uh, I would associate it with a kind of fifties hairstyle. Um, yeah, and he's leaning in towards us as though he yes. knows that, that we are charmed by his presence. He does lean in rather rather alarmingly, actually. He's coming at you. Uh, you're mm. absolutely right. Of course, the dot in the middle, that is a hole because this is um, a postcard record. So this is a record oh. stamped onto a postcard. And um, because we're not in the same room, we've had to prepare. Young Tom at Wardour Studios has prepared a digital file of the music and if we listen very carefully i hopefully he can play it for us and we can hear the postcard ah. <laughs> so i can tell you he's called um Hartmut Eichler, that's his name. Right. <laughs> and, and this is the old... Uh, this is him singing. I think so. This is an old spiritual, isn't it? Down by the riverside. But it's, they've got some new German words to it, I think. I think it is early wow. 60s, I suspect. OK. Made in Budapest, but for the German market. Goodness. And does it does it say anything on the back? Yeah, is there a message well, too? Oh no, it's not been sent. Um, okay. Often these were sent in envelopes. Uh, they came with an envelope. But, I, well, I uh, suppose you'd have to protect the the the, 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 the grooves yeah. from the but post. But we have played. I have played them that were sent naked, and they still played. And it's not <laughs> bad for a piece of cardboard. <laughs> so it, it is actually made of card. It's cardboard with a very thin. Um, like a laminate on it, like the, yeah. the sheen. And the, the record is pressed into that laminate. And so presu presumably, if we were watching this play live, he would be spinning around. Um, yes, getting slightly dizzier and dizzier. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Hartmut Eichler continues to rotate at exactly 45 revolutions per minute, that's it for this time on Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, Jeremy Noltod and Corinne Fowler. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book, Postcard from the Past, by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.